welcome. Welcome to Conversations in Compassion, a podcast by Dignity Maine, a program of Agape Inc., and made possible by Coffee by Design Rebel Blend Fund. This is a different kind of podcast. Instead of interviews, we have conversations. This is my effort to demonstrate the examples of what I call compassionate conversation. Through these conversations, I hope to address the discord in our families, in our communities, and in ourselves, to focus on the greatest need of our time, the need for compassion. Thank you. Thank you for being here. And uh, what I'd really love to do today is to talk about being a teacher during this virus during this time and what it's like for you. It's a job that I didn't necessarily um, sign up for and could never have imagined, but I have put on my mask and taken an inner breath and walked in to teaching online in March. I can remember the day exactly, Friday, March 13th. We'd had a faculty meeting after school on Wednesday, an emergency faculty meeting on the 11th. And um, just did what needed to happen last spring in survival emergency mode. And then this fall, returning into the building, same analogy, just this time literally putting on my mask and walking in, ready to to do the job that needed to be done and knowing that it was going to be a little bit like trying to learn how to fly the plane mm. while the plane had already taken off and you were teaching because now that we are um, hybrid, remote, and in person, we're using way more technology and there are way more many levels and layers to how to reach the students and connect with the students and create community and deliver instruction. And technology wasn't so critical in February of last year, I mean, of this year. It wasn't so critical to the life of teaching. It was a little bit, but now it's essential. What does that meant to it? Well, it's essential and it's crucial and it's everything. Um, and actually technology, I think, was in a sort of ironic and I don't want to say serendipitous because that seems like a positive. Technology revealed the inequities in our district and in our schools. And I think everywhere in the world, I don't think this is just local to Portland. We suddenly realized how many of our students didn't have stable, adequate internet and how all along, while we had been using technology in our education and posting things on Google Classroom and asking them to watch videos at night or to use their Chromebooks or laptops to do the schoolwork for us, how many of our students weren't actually able to do that in their homes. So then when we did go entirely online on Friday, March 13th, we lost a lot of our kids, mm. and they just disappeared for weeks. And it was a little frantic trying to find them. It was a little like um, trying to talk underwater because the only thing you could use was your laptop. Mm. You could, I love that. You could just like talking underwater. And also the, the sort of classism of people started to show up. And those with less 
less technology, less internet access. We're even missing, almost missing the access to education. Yeah. I mean, a little bit, it, I had a colleague comment that it is sad that it took this pandemic to reveal the classism um, and the inequities. And, you know, a little like Katrina, it took Katrina to make us face sort of the racism of some of the socioeconomic, demographic, geographical conditions of a lot of our um, Americans of color or people of, of less social class. This pandemic revealed to me personally um, how much of an equalizer the actual physical building of a school is. Mm. That although there are definitely inequities in every school in the country, just getting the students into the building is one of the greatest sources of equity and that that building is really, although often dysfunctional and under-resourced and overworked, is one of the great equalizers that we do have. And it, it did, in a weird way, make me feel very um, chagrined and abashed about the inequities that were revealed in the pandemic, but also gave me a lot of faith that public education can try to strive to continue to get it right if we can keep our buildings open and and have the students in them, ideally not during a pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> well, I really appreciate that. You could, you could feel and appreciate the space and how important space was to just make sure that people had, because once they had the access to space, then they were all equal. Mm -hmm. And that what you found... And particularly for a population you've been dealing with, which is English language and uh, new Americans, and you know, you found the equity. I mean, the the missing pieces of technology, and yeah, I I found them, um, you know, in a way to to be one of the greatest burdens that, and I don't think it was also the technology that. The lack of technology, the lack of internet, frantically trying to give out free lunches and free hotspots to the kids and having pickup places in three different schools across the district. Um, but the, the technology revealed the inequities, but it also, I feel, did a lot of good, too. I mean, I was, you know, once, I'm not going to say that we found all of our ELL New American students through the spring, through the course of April and May, some kids just really gave up. Mm. Um, but we did find most of them and connected with them um, and learned how to create community. But it's also, I think it's the mindset that, you know, the pandemic hit and a lot of, you know, and I this is all anecdotal and what I've heard, but, and I had the same experience, a lot of new Americans and new immigrants would respond, what do you mean school's going on? We're in the middle of a crisis and a pandemic. Like, let's all just breathe. And it really also revealed to me <laughs> that, um, you know, Americans have this attitude that education is our right as an American. And that's true. It's absolutely true. But I think a lot of the new American families also realize that education in many parts of the world is a privilege. Mm, mm. And they have had to go without when they have been journeying or immigrating or waiting in refugee camps or going underground in their asylum seeking mm. so um or their war torn moments so that that was very revealing to me too is it it 
the pandemic has allowed me as a teacher to sort of see education differently, that it is a right, but what an amazing privilege it is to have a building that creates as best as we can and with good intentions, um, equity for these students. And community. And community. You know, and a place for them all to come together in some way. Mm-hmm. You know, that's a beautiful story because I just really appreciated that. That You know, we have to get the schools open. We have to get back to education. We have to. And then there's this group of people going, why? This is a time of rest. Mm-hmm. This is a time of holding each other as a community. And I've, you know, I've had conversations with people in my neighborhood, which is, um, you know, a, a privileged neighborhood with mostly white Americans. And some of the parents are very frantic that their children are not getting the education they need, which is probably true, mm-hmm. um, and that they're going to fall behind. And like, as you said, that pause, like it's a pandemic, it's a crisis, let's pause and just hold each other. You know, I've just thought if we just are reading to our children and engaging with our children and loving our children and making sure they get outside and play, they're going to be okay. We're mm. very elastic. We're very resourceful. We'll we'll bounce back. And, you know, if you're competing for Stanford, no one else's kids are – everyone's in the same situation, right. the same right. boat here. Right. And the pandemic is, is an equalizer also. It's just like we're all here. We're all doing it. You know, we're all in this process together. And, and if we could just rest – yeah. And I love that. I love that phrase, you know, just be still and heal. Mm-hmm. You know, and the push to get everybody back in the building, get everybody to to get online, get the education, make sure we can stay up to the standards. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot to learn from it in the being still. And for me, the push is not to absolutely open schools all the time from mm-hmm. here on out and to go back to business is normal because we won't go back mm. to business as normal. And I think a lot of schools and teachers will do better because of this pandemic. And if they do take advantage of that stillness and they look at their practice, like I've had moments of, um, oh my gosh, there are great inequities, but oh my gosh, this building is the greatest equalizer there is. Then mm. we're, we're not going to go back to normal because hopefully we'll, we'll make it better and we'll see some of our our faults and some of our holes and some of our inadequacies and learn from them. You made a shift. You know, a lot of people get stuck in what is not. You know, it's not going to be the same standard we had before. I'm not going to, my kids are going to fall behind. This, you, you shifted it and said, it's about the space. It's about the building. It's about community. Do you have a sense of how you did that? Um, I think when I became an ELL teacher and I, you know, I was a classroom high school English teacher and I used to teach honors level, junior honors level classes and creative writing too to juniors and seniors. And I taught, um, you know, some pretty intense grammar, the difference between who versus whom and how to use the subjunctive mood and the elliptical clause and... Um, and then as I met more and more new Americans in my teaching at Daring High School, and I had more and more students arriving into my classroom with very little English 
and working so hard to keep up and my having to meet them where they were at, I started to just in the back of my mind think a lot about what do these students need when they graduate from high school to survive in this world? And then I started to think about this phrase, sort of survival English. Mm. And so now that it's the pandemic, it's more sort of survival education. And I would give the same advice to my new American students in Portland Public Schools as I would my neighbors. Like, we're all going to be fine. These are not normal times. Mm. We need to be thinking about trauma-based education and how to teach the survival brain and how to bring it back to just connecting and holding and keeping that community going. And there is that great rush to get back in the building. And the only reason I feel the great rush to get back in the building is that before we do have to go online again, if the surge continues and it gets bad here in Portland, Maine, I want to have connected with those students in Mm. person before I have to work with them online because Mm. I could not have held on to some of the students that I was able to hold on to if I hadn't been with them in the building Mm. and I hadn't known them in person. So prior to the pandemic, you had this relationship with them. And so because of that, they would then find a way to stay with you through the technology. Yeah. And and you you could feel that relationship is so critical and you'd love another opportunity to kind of build on those relationships so that if we have to, if we we have to kind of leave the building again. Yeah. And I, you know, I, the power of the emoji, I, and I felt a little silly doing it, but I suddenly started using endless heart emojis and hearts with waves and hearts with sparkles and different colored hearts and rainbow hearts and (laughs) silly faces and, um, the just trying to, to be social emotional with these students through Google chats and Google classroom comments and Google mail and Google meets, um, and, just remembering that everything was just about celebrating that they were there and that we mm-hmm. got to hear their voices. And some of my best moments last spring were when I was just hanging out on a Google Meets with my students. And some of the best moments I've had this fall are when my students are in my classroom. Mm-hmm. It's again that education or the actual knowledge is secondary to the relationship. And you can feel the heart. Uh, you can feel the connectedness, and then education can happen. Yeah, it's Maslow's hierarchy of needs being mm. tested right. programmatically, pedagogically, structurally mm. in our systems and our schedules. So, mm. I mean, I've never known so many spreadsheets of concerns. And is this, you know, as we would code it and fill out Google Forms, are you concerned about attendance? Are you concerned about engagement? Are you concerned about behavior? Are you concerned about safety? You know, we just trying to figure out through this void of technology what was going on with our students when they weren't in the building with us. Mm. And what and what we what you learned and what we've kind of learned in this process is that we if we can go back to that you know, back to the heart, back to the connection. Then we can bring. Then then we can bring the rest of it to the to the table. People will show up, even if it's through technology. They will work on getting a better internet. They will, they will because they want the relationship. 
And they desperately want the relationship. I have a student right now who just transitioned out of sheltered instruction classes where it's intensive English language classes. And she's now what we say into the mainstream. Mm. So she's in a, a general grade 10 English class. But she wants to be in the building so badly um, that she has asked me, can I go back to an English language class? Can I can I no, not be in the mainstream? Because we're, um, although Portland is hybrid, K through nine, grade nine, she's now a 10th grader. And so th- she was sort of, you know, released into the big school in um, the fact that she's a 10th grader. So all of her classes are now online and she's been in the U.S. for two years now. Um, half of eighth and all of ninth. Um, and she, so she's entirely online and she's now no longer in these sheltered instruction classes for English. She desperately wants to go back because those students have been invited into the building. And even if they're in 10th, 11th, or 12th grade, they're asked at during high school, I mean, sorry, at Portland High School, to come in Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, and Friday for their direct instruction English classes. Um, and so we're kind of creating a hot spot there, which is mm-hmm. controversial, but to create that equity in the community and to get them in a building where there's internet and they mm. have the space and time to learn English, mm. which is the language of instruction in our schools. Um, and I keep saying to her, no, I am not going to send you back, but that's how badly she wants to mm. be in the building and in a community. Mm. Yeah, I love how you said it. So it's Maslow's theory again is like community is so critical and so important to people. You can hear it in their their stories, their wishes. Like I just want to come back into the building. I just want to. There's a lot of push to get people to just open up the buildings again and not worry about the virus and it'll be all right. And what what are your thoughts about this? This push to make it all normal. Well, it's it's not going to be normal, at least not immediately. Um, I do, I do think that every building has to really figure it out for themselves, mm-hmm. and that's definitely been apparent at in the Portland Public Schools. What's good for one elementary school or one middle school is not good for the other one, you know. And we have three high schools and three middle schools, and I think we have seven elementary schools. So, I think that nationwide or that wide-sweeping push that all buildings should be open, um, it it really depends on the building and the spaces in the building and what the building can offer as far as circulation and social distancing and movement. Um, and it's what looks great in design is not necessarily great in detail and deliverable. So while the hybrid education seems great, they're in the building half the time, half the exposure, we can contact trace, but they're home the other half time. That can be very um, disconcerting to students who need more regularity and more consistency if it's a student who at all has any anxiety or mm. um, has an IEP or, or needs things to be very routine. So, And it also, I think... If some schools aren't able to deliver the details, it almost ends up being, I don't want to say half the education, but Mm. our teachers, we've not doubled our teaching staff. Mm. And we are teaching one cohort in person while the other cohort is learning asynchronously. And then we have a third cohort 
that is entirely remote. So you're getting um, you're getting in the building two days a week, but you're only getting to be with those teachers mm. those two days of the week. And mm. so there's that push and pull of if we were online all the time, you would show up all together with the same teacher all those days. Mm. Mm. Um, and I think buildings have done marvelously, wonderfully inventive things. It's like magical thinking and magical scheduling to make it work for all the cohorts, whether mm. they're A, B, remote, and for the teachers, mm. and offering accommodations to the students, offering accommodations to the teachers and the faculty and the staff. So there is there it has been a great sort of I think, you know, pedagogy check, body check, physical plant check on like how can we be compassionate mm. and accommodating but not lose too much. Mm. You can almost feel like policy, you know, let's let's do this across the board, like open all schools or do this or do that, is a, a way of oppression, actually, that some people that works for and some people it doesn't work for. And and how do we, how do we begin to meet the needs of all the teachers, all the staff members, all the— And all the all buildings. The, and all the all buildings. All the physical plants. I mean, that yeah. building, that great equalizer, different buildings can handle different things. And, and the few conversations I've had with teachers— there seems as though there's a large expectation to make all these changes, make all these accommodations without a lot more support. I just feel overwhelmed. Entirely. <laughs> I just, you know, you love this occupation, this, this possibility of inspiring somebody. And at the same time, it's, it feels like an oppression. Like teachers, we're gonna we're gonna adapt, and you're not gonna get any more support. I mean, we're gonna listen to you, but we're not really gonna give you that much more support. And it, and it looks like people are tired and even mad. And mm-hmm. yeah, I don't know how you know. I can't speak for any other schools. I can say that the scheduling that was designed. Um, at Portland High, I think the support that they've been able to give, which has not been in more staffing mm-hmm. or monetary support, not that any teacher is ever in the business for a big paycheck, has been in the gift of the new schedule allowing us more time. We have a later start. Mm-hmm. We have an earlier finish. We've realized that there is fatigue, screen fatigue, and to have 80-minute blocks mm-hmm. Um, Portland used to be an alternating blue and white day, four blocks a day. Each block was 80 minutes. So a student and or a teacher could be juggling anywhere Mm. from six to eight classes. Mm -hmm. Um, The student could be eight. The teacher, we usually, our contract is to six classes, but three classes a day. And that's a lot of students and a lot of assignments Mm. and a lot of executive functioning. So the, the support has been in. Portland High decided to go to a block schedule, a four-by-four schedule. So we only have four classes, Mm -hmm. three for the teacher, four for the student possibly. Most students only take three classes. Mm -hmm. So just the support is in the simplifying the schedule, simplifying Mm -hmm. the caseloads, reducing the number of students, reducing the amount of time Mm -hmm. that we're teaching 40 minutes, and then opening this whole new program sort of support system, which is called the Learning Center, and it's not yet 
fully being understood or up and running, but I think there's a lot of effort to make it where there are three blocks in the afternoon where teachers can find other teachers or students or students can find teachers to revise or resubmit or revisit or support each other in the learning that was delivered in the morning. And I I have felt also that administration and faculty and teacher leaders, cluster coordinators, are just much more understanding of the freedom and the professionalism in teaching. If if I'm going to work from home today, that's fine. You're online anyway. Just let us know. What do you need? There's a much more Mm. of that, what do you need? You know what you need to do. Figure it out, and, and we'll make it work. So I think there's been a lot more sort of amenability and flexibility and not what you said that like Mm. the policy is oppressive because one policy doesn't work Mm. for a single student teacher schedule or building. Mm. You you came in this to inspire. You end up right now in the midst of this pandemic. You can feel, you know, it moves you around. It gives you some flexibility. What grabs you now? Advocacy mm. and equity are my, um, and I know that they can sound like buzzwords, and that, it, but um, for me, my what grabs me is with my ELL students, mm. um, getting them through the the metaphoric door into these classes, that giving them. Um, the tools they need, and that I go back to that survival English, survival grammar, the tools that they need to make sure that they're heard and that their teachers understand them and understand who they are as learners and the strategies that they themselves mm-hmm. use as language learners and also the strategies that the teachers could use to help them. So I'm, I'm, you know, we're three weeks into this, and mm-hmm. although there is definitely some language learning and content learning going on, so much of it has been around the expectations and the norming of a Google Meet. You walk into the room with your microphone off. Mm-hmm. You say, good morning, Miss McWilliams, when mm-hmm. you walk into my classroom. Mm-hmm. And you have your video on so I can look into your eyes and I can see your face. Mm-hmm. And then after you and I have connected, you are welcome to mute your microphone and turn your video off, but know that there will be times when I ask you to turn it on. Mm. You use the chat bar. You speak your need on the chat bar. How do you type on the chat bar? We've been practicing this whole TTQA, which is an acronym, turn the question around. And when they walk into the room and they say, good morning, Miss McWilliams, with their microphone on and their video on, and they greet me and I greet them back, I say, go to the chat bar. And I always have a personal connection question today, yesterday's was um, evidently, or sorry, without a doubt, what makes my life feel most meaningful and purposeful is what makes your life most meaningful and purposeful. And they have to turn that around into a statement. And today's chat bar question was furthermore, so I'm trying to teach them transitional phrases and punctuation and Mm. discussional vocabulary. So Furthermore, what is your greatest challenge in mm. your life? Um, so for me, it's about norming and coming together and um, giving them the advocacy and equity skills they need so when they go into other Google Meets and other Google Classrooms, 
they are seen and heard by their teachers. Because very often, students of little language, diverse minority students, students of color, we have we found last spring would mute themselves more and turn off their videos more often because they were uncomfortable with their language. They were shy about their living space. There was so much chaos or noise going on if they have more people at home than an you know, middle-class, more privileged Mm -hmm. family. Mm -hmm. So just really, if you want to create relationships with your teachers and be heard, you have to figure out how to be comfortable with your video on and off at times and your microphone on and off and how you're going to use the chat bar. Mm. I love those questions. I can hear, you know, like, what are your greatest challenges? What do you really want? What are you hoping for? And it's funny. Most of them shared their greatest purpose and meaning in life was family, Mm. education, and friends. Mm. And most of their challenges were Mm. school-related. I thought the challenges might be, you know, fear, um, home life, insecurity, Mm. food Mm. insecurity, what, what not. And it was reading books, staying organized, getting my homework done, focusing in class, not getting distracted. <laughs> and I found that really telling that they're, they feel their greatest challenge right now is in their schooling. Yeah, and, and just they see the value of it, and they can also feel the challenge of it. Yeah, both. There's a fear, I would imagine, in the advocacy in the context that, you know, that our classism will actually get deeper the people that are poor, or new Americans, or have less access, will follow far farther behind. Yeah. And I really appreciate that was your advocacy. Like, no, there are certain things we can do. To keep them in the door. To keep them in the door. Yeah. Crossing the threshold, delivering them um, in. So, yeah, I, I teach a, an elective for higher-level English language learners, and they've signed up for it, and I'm really polishing their speaking and writing and, and teaching them all those tricks. Um, I'm encouraging them to make mistakes and to take risks, and it's better to mispronounce or misspell mm-hmm. an ambitious or academic word than it is to hide in simple, everyday mm-hmm. street words. And then I also do a support class for freshman ELL students and we, even though we're in the classroom together, we have the Google Meets going. And I turn my microphone off, and they all turn the volume off on their computers. But I'm talking to them in person and saying, I don't see you on my screen. I only can see your forehead. I need to see your entire face to connect with you and understand who you are. (laughs) And they still use the chat bar, even though they're in the room, because I say, I'm practicing with you so that if we do go online... I can feel good that you've been instructed and mm. explained how to advocate for yourself once mm. we're online. And when your teams of teachers get together and they say, a lot of our students aren't turning on their microphones or their videos, I can say, but not my students because we practice it every day. And they know that they have to show not their ceiling, but their actual, like, turn the screen down so I can see your smile and I can look into your eyes. Mm. So so much just norming and prepping to hope that when we if we were to shut down that they'd be good to know how to do it on their own if they have the internet <laughs> right well the, and the biggest part of that is that yeah i think you named it so beautifully that when people start to feel like they don't fit in through the language 
um, just that they can't pronounce a word or, you know, then they start to pull back mm-hmm. or, or go to the language that they know. Or just mute themselves. Or mute themselves. Yeah. And just how powerful that is to just like, don't mute yourself. Try. Step into it. And in language acquisition, that whole idea of comprehensible input that, that these students need to be in social realia. They need to have manipulatives and, and visuals and tangible things to understand the language and to make progress just gets lost mm. when you go to online learning and teachers are working incredibly hard using all these very jazzy mm. New free to us technologies that keep kids engaged and visually stimulated and offering images. And it's admirable how much time teachers are teaching themselves and frantically trying to figure out the technology while they're teaching to to give them that. But it it is concerning because these new Americans new to English need so much instruction and enrichment just surrounded by visual, verbal, auditory input. And that's so hard in the computer. So I do, you know, I kind of joke with my own neighbors, your kids are going to be fine. Just love them and hug them and (laughs) read them a book. It is, you know, this pandemic and our shutting down these buildings as equalizers does um, mute them. Mm-hmm. and stop that acquisition and that progress mm-hmm. in ways that I don't think we fully understand. Mm-hmm. And it's scary. You know, and you're trying to make sure, I mean, it's really beautiful. You're just trying to make sure they don't, un, they don't mute themselves mm-hmm. as human beings. Mm-hmm. You know, because it's easy to do. Mm-hmm. You know, and again, with the equity of, you know, whether it's a New American or somebody that's poor or, They don't feel like they fit in. All they have to do is just mute themselves. And that's not just the new Americans or students new to um, English. It's, you know, I think that's that's sort of universal, that there's a Mm. lot of Mm. muting and disappearing behind avatars and profile pictures going on in Mm. education. And it's very hard to teach to a blank screen. The other thing you said about teachers and this was the thing I noticed that they were tired about. They were trying very hard to bring all of this stuff that they didn't have before in their spare time. They were building this or trying that or um, bringing something else into the classroom online and through technology. And they were spending all these extra hours, you know, just trying to get the right PowerPoint or the right book or and how to get it online. And, and just the exhaustion of that just... I want to be a teacher, and how can I use all these tools? And And for some of us, it doesn't come naturally. We're not drawn to it. Mm. And, Mm. you know, my own children, I've been looking through their Google Classrooms, and I'm amazed at what some of the teachers are able to do technologically. And I ask my own kids, does this help? Do you you Mm. learn better from this? And sometimes they say, yeah, and sometimes they say, no, it's just distracting. It's Mm. just too much to learn. And I was meeting with a teacher yesterday about how to support and promote the executive functioning of keeping a lesson planner for our incoming freshmen. Mm. Do we want to do it pencil and paper? Do we? Mm. How do we collect it? The students can take photos of the piece of paper and upload it to the assignment on Google Classroom, or they could just drop it off in my inbox, and I could let it sit there for a few days and wear gloves to pick it up and 
but um, just teaching teaching them that and figuring out how much technology is too much, how much is distracting, mm. what helps each student. And it's amazing what we can do in person when we're walking around a classroom, the amount of nonverbal communication and physical mm. communication that goes on just as your mm. presence moves and comes closer to a student further mm. away and as you quickly tap a desk and hand a ruler and Mm -hmm. point to the sharpener when another kid is looking. Mm -hmm. All of that is so hard to mimic in a Google Meets on a screen, Mm -hmm. and you you just don't have the power or the presence that you have in in the classroom. And just that idea that we're never really using paper and pencil so much anymore. Mm -hmm. So they're remarkable tools Mm -hmm. to support our students. It's a beautiful story. I can, I could feel you walking around the classroom and just kind of like leaning towards somebody, you know, and saying, I'm here. Yeah, but even now that we're in the building and I only have half my kids on any given day, um, it's very hard for me to stand there at mm-hmm. the board and not to move around the room. Mm-hmm. And I move around minimally when I need to check things and I, I'm actually walking around with a long ruler stick so that I can point on their computer screen without leaning in too close to them and it feels um it feels weird but it's the you know no it's keeping that physical distance and but it's the metaphoric putting on the mask and going in and doing the job because you know and i it's been interesting listening to that debate about frontline or teachers frontline and we are now um you know we we're asked to let our our physicians and our doctors know that we are frontline workers. So if we get a COVID test, we need a fast track result, and um, and we are to be in that building and to to walk in that door. And for me, that that's the interesting what inspired me to have this conversation with you, because yes, we can understand the doctors, the nurses, the medical staff. You know, they were right there on the front line. And once we started to say, let's do the school again, let's open it up, let's make it even half, hybrid, uh, we risk all of that again mm-hmm. to a group that we didn't call the front line. Right. We didn't think of them as the front line. Right. And we didn't, we didn't even have the resources for them to be the front line. And so I'm just appreciative that we, you know, you and I are having this conversation because it is the front line. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It's the people who are caring for and inspiring the children of our communities. Right. With the, you know, the yearly annual budget. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm thinking back to the how support is happening and um one one way the teachers and it was it was a wonderful suite gesture the the district gave us all 24 salary contact hours in june because they figured absolutely we had spent an inordinate amount of time figuring Mm. out technology very Mm. quickly while Mm. also teaching Mm. and so that you know that helps towards our certification it helps towards our you know moving towards higher lane payments so there have been some you know amazingly inventive ways to support us and while you know, we attend our Zoom meetings with 100 faculty members and we all mute ourselves. Um, there's still wonderful moments of just humor and people 
saying goofy things or making fun of each other or connecting. Mm -hmm. And I think the administrators, more than in normal times, to continue that community and that care, have have said some very reassuring mm -hmm. reminders of, we don't want you to, we're worried that you, we understand that you, mm -hmm. please let us know when, you know, and everyone's just been a slightly more empathic mm. and assuming best intent and mm. understanding that we are professionals and we're getting it done the best way we can. And we're having Zoom meetings on Wednesdays where assistant principals are home alone with their two small children and still working a full day. Mm. And mm. it's amazing to see what people are doing. Well, it's that creativity and and. One of the ways through this is just what you just said, this empathic process of like understanding what it means to be on the front line. What it means to try to make sure there's an equal process for everybody and that there are needs, different kinds of needs for different people. And whether it's an assistant principal that needs to be home because they have two small children. Or, mm -hmm. or another person who who's scared to come in because they have a mom at home that is 85 years old and is scared that she's going to get the virus. So they ask for the accommodation and you, you give it to them because what do you, I mean, it's so complicated. Yes. Yes, and, and you know, there's even people that believe that it's not even there. Mm -hmm. And so how do we work as a community to respect everybody's opinion and everybody's idea? And I love that. You know, just this has to be this underlining empathy for everybody's thoughts and everybody's ideas and how they perceive it. And when my kids walk in, the where our students are asked to sanitize their hands when they come into a classroom, and we're supposed to be sanitizing the spaces between classes, which we're doing. They've really upped the cleaning, but when my students walk in, they go and they, they hit the wall pump and they sanitize and then they get of paper towels and the spray bottle, and I say, you know, wipe, you know, sanitize your own area so you feel safe in that space, mm -hmm. and and wipe the back of your chair. And I keep saying we're doing this to keep ourselves safe. We're doing this to keep our, our aunts and our uncles and our grandparents and our siblings at home safe. And even if we don't think we have it or we can catch it, this is what we're doing to make other people feel safe. And so it's just all about that continuing community and compassion and and not even asking if people believe it's there or they don't believe it's there, but this is what we do now. It's not necessarily about you catching it. It's about making them feel safe, mm. the other people in the room. I can't imagine when you became a teacher many, many years ago that you thought, I'm going to be spending my time just equalizing things and keeping people safe and advocating for different people. And just, that was going to, that would be my most important job. Yeah, that lens hasn't been fully my lens until probably about 10 years ago. Mm. Mm. Um. I was sitting, I was standing in the front of the classroom teaching Macbeth, and I think I was in like scene three of act one, and it was a required canon of the sophomore class, required teaching, and I was trying to teach Elizabeth in England and Shakespearean language, and I just knew I was failing miserably, and I looked around, and there was 
a sea of faces. Many students just recently arrived from Burundi just looking at me so lost. And I remember just closing the book and mm-hmm. thinking and saying, well, that was Shakespeare. <laughs> so that was today, and tomorrow we'll start a new unit. <laughs> mm. And I just, that was a real moment in my life where I was like, this is not mm-hmm. what these students need right now, is to learn how to read Macbeth. We need to be doing other lessons to get them ready for what they need. That, that's so so beautiful. You can feel it too, that moment, right? Where you just kind of closed the book and said, even though this may be required, that's not what they need. No, and it was freeing for me too because there's this push to get through, get through, get through, and, you know, and mm. it's hard to meet students where they're at means you are possibly going at a slower pace or you're not getting through all the units or you're not getting all of the canon of great literature um, taught. But well, and it may be just getting those young people who were muted to not be muted. Right. That that may be the goal. And I think the goal is to have them feel safe and want to come to school and have fun. And, and be seen. Yeah. And for not, wherever they are. Yeah. And whatever's going on with them. And not to say we're not going to continue with pedagogy and content, but mm. they're they're there, but they shouldn't be most forward in our thinking, prescient in our minds. Right, and have them work with inspiring, open-ended questions, like what are your hopes, or furthermore, what are your challenges? Yeah, my the, the elective class I teach, your college voice, we're slowly going through the seven different common application essay questions that they, and some of them are only sophomores Mm -hmm. um, in my class, and that's a journal. Each week they're doing one of those as a journal, Mm -hmm. Um, and I won't ever see those journals. Mm -hmm. I won't ever collect them. They'll just take pictures, and I've said I'm I'm not going to collect these. But at the end of our journaling, you will choose one that you feel is your strongest voice, and we are going to edit, revise, polish, and maybe one day publish mm. that as an essay. Um, but that is that those open-ended rhetorical questions that still are getting, it's not content, but they're getting all those language skills mm. and advocacy mm. engagement skills they need. With a, with a dash of inspiration to, this is a college essay. Yes, well, and, you know, that idea of, like, incentivizing them that mm. let's get credit for writing your college essay when you're a sophomore. And you may never use it as, as yeah. your college essay, but you've had that experience. And that's that's equity work, yeah. that there isn't someone sitting at a dining room table telling them what the common app essay really is about and what do these colleges, what are they looking for? Because right. there might not be someone at home who knows that. Right. Right. And this is a way of just using all of it to make it about a dream. Mm -hmm. You said a couple of times today, and as we sort of finish up, you you said a couple of times meeting the student where they're at. And I loved that in a lot of your conversation was actually meeting people where they dream. Yeah. You know, which is, I want more. You know, is when you asked them what are their challenges. I want to be able to get to school. I want to be able to, you could hear the dreams in all of it. Mm Mm-hmm. What you thought was something very different, like I don't have enough food on the table, or there's a lot too many people in the house, or it was really more about 
being able to read this novel. Or... And actually, a few of my students today, and it was it was more the female students, said, you know, my greatest purpose and meaning in my life are my dreams. Mm. And then I just want to ask them, well, what are you going to do about that? Mm. You know, how are you going to make that happen? So that's your dream. So what are you going to do about that? Right. I love that. <laughs> Thank you for doing this with me. I really appreciate it. Oh, it's been fun. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's conversation. I truly hope you enjoyed it. If you like what you hear, please consider subscribing to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you find your podcasts. I'd like to give a heartfelt thanks to Coffee by Design and their Rebel Fund for their support to help make this podcast possible. Thank you again for being here. Take care.